In the, uh, in the early church, there were a great number of periods of persecution. In fact, there were ten altogether, but two in particular uh, were much more devastating to the church. And in some of the earlier periods of persecution, there were many believers fell away. They denied Christ and they cowered. The church recognized this as a problem, and so they began to prepare people for suffering. They began to prepare people for trials and for persecution, so much so that when the last great persecution broke out under Diocletian from 284 to 305, and uh, even though it was the most intense and the most extensive, the command from Rome was the total extinction of Christianity. During this period, the church actually fared much better and more faithfully than it had in any of the times prior. They'd been prepared. They knew what to expect. And so when it came, they weren't surprised. And this, this shouldn't surprise us. The key to enduring, the key to passing through trials is by being prepared to endure them. Jesus in John 16.1, so he's been rehearsing up to this point difficulties that his followers are going to face. All the world will hate you for my sake, he tells them. Brother will turn against brother. They'll drag you before courts. And then he tells them this, I have told you these things so that you will not fall away. So the Lord preserves us through trials. And one of the ways He does that is by preparing us to face them. And He prepares us through the Word. One of the reasons why we're working through the book of Revelation is because this book serves to prepare the church for hardship. It's one of the reasons why it's here at the end of the Bible. And I, and I, don't, I don't think anybody today looking at the landscape of the culture and the church expects things to get easier in the near future. All indications point to the fact that things are going to get worse. If you want to endure, and if you want to come out on the other side faithful, and you have to be ready to face it. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Romans chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, as we continue to fortify our souls as we work through this book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I meant Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Verses 14 through 22. You all should have known that. <laughs> and to the angel at the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would write its eternal truths on our heart this morning. That you would help us not to be like the church at Laodicea, but to see clearly and to be prepared. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God. We desperately need you. All of our striving, Lord, apart from you, would be failing. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand your word this morning. Lord, we are weak. We are frail. We are prone to wander. But you are able to keep all who are yours and keep us steadfast and faithful to the end. And so, Lord, it's to you we look and in you we hope. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, the other day I was reading through the opening of 1 Samuel and I was struck as I was reading it by a, a story there about the Ark of the Covenant. Israel was in a spiritually low spot, but they weren't engaged in all kinds of idolatry. You know, it wasn't like the time of the judges where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. In fact, they were actually faithfully coming to the tabernacle at Shiloh and offering their sacrifices. They were attending the festivals. However, the priesthood was corrupt, and the high priest, their father Eli, didn't do anything about it. And even though the people dutifully did what the law required, and they appeared to be zealous for the Lord, it was all in external things, and it, it wasn't real. And yet, if you were an outside observer looking at the nation at this point in time, 1 Samuel, you would say that these people are incredibly religious. They put a lot of stock in their rituals and even superstitions. And so, when they lost a battle at the hands of the Philistines, the mind of the nation collectively turned to one place to look there for deliverance, to the Lord. They knew that if he was on the field of battle with them, they could be nothing but victorious. And so they send the priests. The priests go and they get the ark. They get the symbol of God's throne on earth and they bring it into the camp. And the Philistines panic and say, uh, act yourselves like men for the Lord of the Israelites is in the camp. The battle commences and of course the Israelites lose. And they lose this second battle far worse than the first. Many of their soldiers are killed, the priests are killed, and the ark of the Lord is taken captive. And it might seem strange when you read this that a people who had such regard for the power of the Lord and the ability of the Lord, I mean a people who knew He could deliver them, right? It's strange that 
that they were defeated, isn't it? I mean, Eli is sitting at home in Shiloh, trembling, we're told, because he's worried about what will happen to the ark. And when the city of Shiloh discovers what happens, it's pandemonium. People are dying. They're so distraught. They panic and they lament the loss of the throne of God. And yet God is not pleased with any of it. In fact, not only is the Lord not pleased, He used this ritualistic, superstitious fervor against the people to carry out judgment on them. You say, why would He do that? Well, because for all of their religiosity and all of their rituals and sacred habits, there was no real knowledge of the Lord. God was far from them and they were far from Him. But because they were surrounded by all of the trappings of true religion, right? They had the priesthood. They had the sacraments. They had the ark. They had the tabernacle, the, the book. They had the history. And because they had all those things, they were convinced that they had genuine religion. They were deceived into thinking that because they were religious, all was right with their souls. And so you see that it is possible to have all kinds of religious things, even good things, God-given things, Christian things, and yet still be spiritually weak, wounded, or even dead. In the churches we've seen so far, it's a common theme, isn't it? At Ephesus, yes, they were doctrinally sound. They wouldn't tolerate false teaching. They held fast to the faith. But in all of their warfare against error, their love had grown cold. They'd lost it and had to recover it. And you remember the Bible says, Paul tells us, if you do not love the Lord, you are damned. The church at Ephesus had lost their love. And Pergamum, they were selling out under political pressure and compromised to save their skin. But there were still many in that city who laid down their lives for Christ. In Thyatira, they went after Jezebel and they, and they caved into the trade guilds and the economic pressure but they still were full of good works and service. We're told that their love has increased since the beginning. And in Sardis, even though they were dead, even though they'd grown sleepy, they at least have a reputation for being alive. There was at least some activity there that could be reoriented into better ways. That's why he tells them, remember the works you did at first. But what if there were none of those things? What if it was like the Israelites... You had all of the trappings of Christianity, but didn't actually have anything real. And what's worse, what if, like these Israelites, you thought you did, and you thought you were faithful, and you thought God was for you? You don't have to think about it very long before names and places begin coming to mind. I mean, how many people grew up in Christian homes and they heard the stories and they went to church and they heard the sermons and they read the books, they memorized the confessions, they were baptized and are convinced all is well with their souls. And they are convinced even though nothing could be further from the truth. And though they're religious and though they think that they're faithful, there's no reality. There are serious defects, serious sins being tolerated, deceptions that have worked their way in, and if not repented of, it will lead to eventually this person's falling away. Well, that's a state of the church at Laodicea. The Lord has nothing good to say about them. Not one thing. There's no approval, no praise for this church at all. And what is so disturbing 
is that they think we're good. They think things are going well. I mean, it's hard to imagine that there could be such a gap between the way these people think of themselves as Christians and the way that Christ thinks of them as Christians. So you see, this is a letter, this last letter of the seven, to the religious self-deceived, to those not just in Laodicea, but in every generation who believe all is well with me, all is well between me and the Lord, when the reality is they're about to be ejected from His presence. These are the ones who here in the end depart from me, I never knew you. The church at Laodicea had become proud. They'd become arrogant and they'd become self-satisfied. And we're not told about any compromise with the world. We're not told about any kind of persecution happening. It could have been and they could have compromised, but we don't know and that's not the point. The point is these Christians are deceived and they're deceived about their own spiritual condition. And for a person to be in the church and think that they're a Christian, what worse thing could you be deceived about? Right? I think I have peace with God. I know I have peace with God and, and think He's my Father and yet none of it be true. That's the condition of the church here at Laodicea. And what is causing that condition, what brought about that deception, is that the church had become worldly. It become worldly. And, and not in a way that you might expect. Not a, not a, a perverse way, not a, a lustful way. They weren't engaging in any kind of gross immorality. They'd lost sight of eternity. And having lost sight of eternity, they began to live for all of the same things that the world around them lived for. In this case, the church had become materialistic. And you can imagine, maybe, a materialistic church appealing to Scripture even to justify themselves in their delusion, can't you? I mean, most of the Old Testament, when you're reading through it, health, wealth, material goods, all of those things are a sign of blessing from the Lord, aren't they? It's a sign of His pleasure. It's a sign that you were pleasing to Him. How easy would it be to take those things and apply them directly to the church? How do you know God is pleased with you? Well, I have a nice home, a good job, healthy family, things are going well, my health is good, God must be pleased with me. I mean, people still think this way today, don't they? Not just in the prosperity gospel. How often do we think, well, if things are going well, if I'm happy and content, and I, you know, I go to church on Sundays, I read my Bible, I'm content, I'm happy, I'm satisfied, things must be going well, God must be for me, and everything is all right. And generally, we don't think that things might be maybe askew unless things start to go poorly. That's why when uh, tragedy strikes or loss strikes people, uh, they tend to turn to the Lord. When things go poorly, that makes them wonder, maybe things aren't okay between the Lord and I. But when things are going good, nobody thinks twice. Well, things are going very good in Laodicea. And things going very good, you remember in the Proverbs, uh, the writer of chapter 30, he says, Give me neither riches nor poverty, that I would not uh, be satisfied and deny you or be poor and steal. Well, this church was very rich. And having become rich, they were taken in by worldliness. And having been taken in by it, they were at risk of being choked by the desires of the world. They're like the seed that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 13 that lands among the thorns. The seed is sown, 
But thorns grow up around the grain and they choke it out. You know what this looks like when it happens to people? In the parable, it's about wheat and thorns. You know what this looks like in the life of a person? Jesus tells us later on. He says, they're those who hear the word. They hear it. They believe it. They receive it with joy. But then along come the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness. And the desire for other things. And they come and they take hold of faith they take it by the neck and they strangle it until it dies. Happened to Demas, as Paul's companion. Happens in every generation. And these Laodiceans are being strangled to death. And worst of all, they don't even know it. But that's how deceit works, right? If it didn't work that way, it wouldn't be deceit. You don't know it's happening. Hence, you are deceived. If you knew, then you wouldn't be deceived, would you? And you never know when you're deceived. You never know until either it's too late or someone or something exposes that lie. And that's what Christ comes to do to the church at Laodicea. And He comes to do in all of our hearts to those who are being at risk of taken in by the desires for other things and the deceitfulness of riches. He comes to expose and He comes to sift. Yes, this church is still a lampstand in the presence of the Lord. There are people in Laodicea who belong to Christ and He is ready to go and have fellowship with them if they humble themselves. But this group of people as a whole, they're identifying as a church and they're in terrible condition, but they're in a, in, a, in a rough spot. We can learn something from how Jesus addresses them here. He addresses them as a church, doesn't He? But He warns them if they continue without repentance, they will prove that many of them did not belong to Him in the first place. And this teaches us something about how the Lord deals with people and how we should deal with people. He deals with them as they are. He comes to them as they appear. Right? They say they're Christians. Jesus deals with them as Christians. He doesn't come and say, well, this group of people is elect in this group and this is not. Now, He knows this, but that's not how He speaks with them. He warns them and even threatens them that unless they change course, many of them will fall away. And so what does this look like? If someone claims they're a Christian and maybe they're living in sin or they become worldly or they're unrepentant, you address that by going to this person and speaking to them where they're at. You are a Christian. You say you are a Christian. You need to repent from this sin. This is not acceptable Christian behavior. And then you warned them. And if you do not, it may prove that you never believed on Christ truly in the first place and He will spit you out of His mouth. That's how Jesus addresses these people. He doesn't come in saying, you're all materialistic and lost and none of you belong to Me. And He doesn't say, well, you're wayward, but everything's alright. You know, there's a few things that need to get ironed out, but don't worry, you're secure. He comes to them and He tells them the truth and He warns them and He commands them to repent and if they do not, they will be lost. He offers fellowship to any one individual in this city who would come and open up to Him. And so in verse 14, He introduces Himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of creation. Well, the reason he introduces himself this way is because he is speaking to people who are deceived. 
they are false and he is true. And he is interested in the truth. He's interested in what is faithful. They've forgotten the truth and have become caught up in the world. And he reminds them he is the beginning of God's creation. Now this doesn't mean, as some have taken it, to mean that he was created. The word in the Greek does mean beginning, but by the time of the New Testament it had come to mean something else. The ruler or the one above which none can be. In fact, you actually know the Greek word being used here because it comes over so often in English. And it's the word arche. And so whenever you hear archenemy or archbishop or archangel, it's the same Greek word. And it doesn't mean the created one. It means the preeminent one. And so in verse 14, it means, to, to bring this into, into the common uh, way we speak, Jesus is the ruler of all creation. And so Christ is presented here as the ancient, all-knowing, all-wise, true, and faithful ruler of all. And he has a warning for this self-deceived church. He wishes that they were hot or that they were cold. And in a sense, he's speaking geographically. In the north, not far away, was a city of Hierapolis that was known for its hot springs that could produce near boiling water. And in the south was the city of Colossae, the, the one the letter to the Colossians was written to. And that city had cold mountain springs that fed the city that they could draw from. Hot water in the north, cold water in the south. Laodicea didn't have any of that. They had mud to drink and polluted waters that were full of white particles. And if anyone drank the water, they became very sick. And so they had to bring water via aqueduct from the nearby mountains. But by the time it arrived and collected in the reservoir in the city, it was tepid and lukewarm. And I'm sure that on more than one occasion, the Laodiceans had water envy of their neighbors. Right? If we just had the, the water of Colossae, if we just had the water of Hierapolis, anything but this awful lukewarm stuff, probably landed with a particular force when Jesus tells them, you know, you're just like that water in your city. Water they probably groaned about every time they had to take a drink. And the point... Well, actually, maybe you've, maybe you've heard this interpretation before. Is that Jesus wishes they were either zealous for Him and were hot, or they were just not committed at all and were cold. Maybe you've heard that before, right? Be on fire for the Lord or be cold. Don't even come to church, right? Be cold. Anything is better than lukewarm. That's an interpretation I've heard before, but I can't think of anything more foolish than that. I mean, do people actually believe that Jesus himself is telling this church that they might as well be carnal and not even try? That Jesus is speaking to this people saying, I just wish that you would just go and sin all that you could and be totally uncommitted at all and act like the pagans. Is that what cold means? You think about it for five seconds. You know that's not what cold means. The point is hot and cold are both useful. It means useful. Hot water can cook food. You know, you can make coffee, tea, they had it in that days. Uh, you can clean with it. Cold water is refreshing to drink. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. You know, I remember the other day I was uh, really thirsty and I grabbed my cup, turned on the tap, took a big drink. And when I did, I stopped with a mouthful of water and ended up spitting it back out into the sink. My wife had just uh, had the hot water running and even though it was turned to the cold water and I thought the cold water was on, the pipes were still full of water that was just exactly at that disgusting temperature that you can't stand. 
right? You know what I mean. It's just the right temperature to be so disgusting you can hardly drink it. That's how the Lord describes this church. He's not angry. He's not ready for war. He's nauseated. They make him sick to his stomach. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not I will spit you out of my mouth. And why will he spit them out? Well, they're lukewarm. Yeah, they, they are, but that's a, that's a metaphor. <laughs> Verse 17 tells us why he'll spit them out. You think, well, is it because they're zealous? Is it because they're not? You know, what, what is it? Verse 17, this is why he'll spit them out. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, Laodicea, it was a city known for its vast wealth. Uh, it's probably the wealthiest of the seven churches listed here. The city was situated in a valley, and in ancient times and even today, people traveled in valleys. Asia Minor is a quite mountainous region. It's too dangerous to travel over the mountains, and even if the distance was short, it wasn't worth it. And so all of the traffic through the valleys, uh, all of the traffic went through the valleys. And if you wonder, well, then how could Laodicea become such a prosperous city without even having a, a right source of water? It was because the city laid at the crossroads of three of these arterial valleys. All of the merchant traffic coming north to south or east to west, all of it had to pass through Laodicea. And so this city became a city of millionaires. And you can probably imagine what a city of millionaires would be like. In fact, they were so wealthy that when an earthquake came through, an earthquake came through and practically leveled the city, flattened it. They declined any help from the emperor who was willing to come and pay vast sums to help rebuild. And instead, these Laodiceans funded the rebuilding of the city, all of the public works themselves. The city was rich. They were proud. They were self-satisfied. They were self-sufficient. And they knew it. And it deceived them. They were deceived. The church became like everyone else around them. They were trusting in the same things they trusted in. They were valuing the same things they valued. They were evaluating success with the instruments of the world. And, 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 and through it all, they thought there's nothing wrong with this at all. You know, it amazes me how often churches are influenced by the prevailing thought of the world around them. In these seven churches, the Ephesians were caught up in cold debate. The church at Thyatira was caught up in pagan idolatry, just like what was happening in the city. In Sardis, they adopted the same overconfident attitude of the people around them. And in Laodicea, they put their trust not in Christ, but in the depth of their pockets, just like everybody else living in Laodicea. Where you live will have a tremendous impact on how you view Christ and what you think it means to be a Christian and what you think it means to be faithful. And you need to be careful and know these things so that you can weigh them accordingly. Weigh everything by the book. Because if you don't, you're going to end up just like the world. And in a society like ours that is rich beyond their wildest imaginations, we are richer than uh, kings of the past could ever dream to be. 1 Timothy 6.17 ought to always be ringing in the back of our minds. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope 
on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, don't put your trust in riches. They're not reliable. Now, isn't it amazing? In every generation throughout history, no matter how, well, how much wealth is amassed, there always is something that can erase it almost instantly. Fires, wars, recessions, panic in the markets, theft. We have countless stories of people going from riches to rags in a very short amount of time. And it's, it's tempting to put our trust in our bank accounts. Even though we know they're fragile. Or, like the world around us, we can put our trust in political victory. Because that's what everyone else is doing these days, right? Just get the right person in office, all the problems will be solved. No, they won't. Put our trust in our own preparations. We're like the rich fool who says, I have ample goods stored up for years to come, and that night he dies. Now listen, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to participate in politics. It doesn't mean it's wrong to prepare for the future. Or it doesn't mean it's wrong to labor to become wealthy. But what is wrong is to put your trust in those things. That's idolatry. And what's more, those things can't save anyway. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He, he prepared uh, for any kind of calamity that could come. And he had you know, all kinds of food and other things stored up for a long time. And I told him, I said, you know, if everything does fall apart and there's no more food, you're only going to outlive me for about six months. <laughs> right? But, but that's the, the point. It's a vain hope. It can't actually deliver. It can't actually save. It just prolongs the inevitable. Now again, there's value in preparing for the future. We're commanded in the book of Proverbs to prepare for the future. But don't trust in it. Trust in God. Right? Don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You want to know whether or not you're doing this? Just ask your friend. They'll tell you. Take, take a step back and, and look at your life from an outsider's perspective. They know what you're trusting in. It's so easy to deceive us that you might need that help. So, This is a sin that can beset a church in any age. It's certainly a threat we face in ours. And it was a threat facing the Laodiceans, though they didn't know it. They thought they were doing well. They thought that they were at the peak of Christian faithfulness. But what does the Lord say? You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a thing to say to a church of millionaires. But He doesn't leave them there. He hasn't come to berate them. He has come to reconcile them and to satisfy them eternally and to call them to Himself. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy for Me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Jesus what? He wants them to be. They think they're rich. They're not rich. He says, you're not rich, but I want you to be rich, so come and buy gold for Me. I counsel you to buy white garments so that you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He says, you're naked. I don't want you to be naked. Come and get real clothes from me and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Jesus is putting his finger directly on those things these people trusted in, telling them, those can't help you, but I have what you need. Come and get them from me, not the world around you. And we know this because when Jesus comes to the church... They've, they've, they've forgotten Christ. They're trusting in the world. They're not getting what they need from Christ because when He comes in verse 20, He's on the outside. He isn't even in there. 
He's knocking at the door on the outside of the church. That's not where you expect to find Christ in the church. But it goes to show how deceived they really are. It's like Samson. You remember after losing his hair, what he says? Delilah says, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson says, I will go out as before. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And this church doesn't even realize that Christ isn't even in their midst anymore. That's how extensive this deception was. And so Christ calls them to see their true condition. And then seeing it, He calls them to come to Him. He calls them to be zealous and repent. He says, I've come to you because I love you. Be zealous and repent. And then He alludes here to Isaiah 55. And in Isaiah 55, the Lord summons those who are naked and who are hungry to come and to buy from Him. And here's what He tells them. Those who have no money, come and buy from Me and be full and be satisfied at My table. I'll have you and I'll welcome you. But He won't welcome them as they are. They're too proud. They're too full. They're too self-righteous. And before they can come, they have to humble themselves. They have to realize that they are all of these things, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. They have to confess or say the same or agree with Christ and His assessment of them. And then and only then will they be fit to come. And that's as true for them as it is for anyone. You cannot come to Christ if you're full of the world and satisfied with it. You cannot come to Christ as if He were an addition to an already well-lived life. You have to realize that you have no life apart from Him and realizing that you come to Christ for your life and you throw everything else behind your back as worthless in comparison. I mean, how many people, even today, they don't come because they think, well, I have all I need and I'm satisfied. You know what? When somebody says, well, if that works for you, that's fine, but I'm happy... You know what the message from the Lord is for anyone like that? You're not as full as you think. In fact, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And one day you're going to find out how much of those things you really are. And if you want to be none of those things, first you have to confess them about yourself and then come to Christ. Verse 19, he tells you that he is the one who has exactly what you need. There's an irony in this, in what he asks the Laodiceans to come and buy, what he tells his people they need, because the industries that made Laodicea rich were the manufacturing of clothes, medicine for the eyes, and banking in the exchange of gold. The Lord says, buy refined gold from him. Refined gold that comes from Christ. That's what makes a person truly rich. And refined gold in the Bible is always a reference to being purged from sin. And so he's telling them, come to him and be purified from their worldliness and separated from their idolatry. And he will make them rich, not in gold, but in holiness, which is far more valuable than all of the jewels and wealth in this world. And he offers them white garments. You know, the wool that they grew in Laodicea and sheared from the sheep and turned into clothes was black. Black wool that was common in that region. And these are white robes that Christ offers them. And it's symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. How many times do you read in the, in the Bible about us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ? These people are naked before God. They have no good works. They think they do, but they don't. There's nothing they can offer to God. Nobody can say, really, before God, I am a good person. I have done good things. By what standard? 
I mean, compare yourself to people around you? Sure, maybe you've done better than them. Compare yourself to the perfect Son of God. How does your righteousness compare? It doesn't. That's why the Bible tells us no one is righteous, no one is good, no, not one. There aren't any good people. But they can be made good in His sight if they come to Christ and are clothed in His perfection so that when they stand before the Lord God to be judged, they're going to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at them, He doesn't see their good works or their bad works. He sees Christ and Christ alone. Last, He has a salve that can cure spiritual blindness. He can open their eyes to see. He can open their eyes to see their condition, see the sinking sand on which they've built their house. He, he can open their eyes to see their own sin and see their own need and see the glories of God revealed in Christ. But it isn't just for those who are blind. Believers need it too. And they need it because they can't discern anything that's happening in their church. They're blind to it. They have no discernment. But they need it. They need purity. They need righteousness. And they need clarity to cut through the deceptions that have captured them and be delivered. And the first step to getting it you say, I want those things. Be zealous and repent. Now be zealous, but be zealous about the right things. That's why they're called to repent. They were zealous for the wrong things before. And that word repent, literally it means to change their minds. Change their minds about what is valuable. Change their minds about their own standing before God. They think they're great. It's not. Change their minds about how they think about themselves. Change their minds about where they place their trust. And once they do this, they will see clearly in order to deal with the rest of the issues that they're facing. When they do this, they will realize that Christ is the only way and they will come to Him. But where is He? He's not in their midst. We've seen Him in the heavenly places. Where is Christ in relation to this church? Well, you think they've made Him sick. Clearly, He must be far off. Maybe there's some things they'll have to do to get them to, to come back first. Maybe they'll have to clean up the act in Laodicea before the Lord will be near. Well, he's actually right outside the door. And some of those hearing this warning will actually heed it and they'll let him in. We read, he stands at the door and knocks, and if any man, any individual in that church hears these words, if he opens the door, Christ will dine with them. I mean, just think of the condescension of Christ here, of the humiliating love that He's showing for His people, the Lord of glory standing outside of a place that He owns, right? He's giving His people time to repent and come and open the door. He hasn't given up on them yet. He is giving them time. But what is He giving them time to do? Well, first, this is not a verse primarily about evangelism. Jesus is not knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart, waiting for them to open up. He is knocking on the door of a wayward church. He is speaking to a wayward Christian. And this person, even though they would identify themselves as a Christian, and even though been going the way of the church, which in Laodicea was the same as the way of the world, if they turn back to God, He will have them. If they doubt, I've wandered so far from the path. I am too far out of the way, too far gone. Christ is not far off. And His word to that repentant person is, if you open the door, 
I will come in and I will dine with you. We will share the most intimate of fellowship if you open the door to me. Christ is the one here who takes initiative. He is the one who comes in loving discipline to the church. He is the one who calls out, calling them to repent. He is the one who comes to the door. He is the one who sends the message. He is seeking the good of His church and His people. We have to get the picture right, though. You know, on occasion, I hear this verse presented this way. Jesus is a gentleman, and He stands at the door knocking, but He won't barge in. He's waiting for the door to be opened. That's not the biblical presentation. Now certainly he is giving a warning to the church and their time is running short, but there's a problem with that interpretation. Jesus is the one who owns the door. Remember who Christ is. He is called the master of the house. And he is knocking to alert his servants that he has returned and he expects them to come and open the door and make ready for him. You know, in Luke 12, a similar parable, he says he will come in and serve them. But look, he's still the master of the house. And he's knocking and he's waiting, but it's an expression of his love and his patience. And when it runs out, Jesus isn't just going to turn around and walk away. He owns the place and he's going to come in and clean house. He's going to, what's he say, spit them out of his mouth. He is going to remove their lampstand. He's going to evict them from the place he owns. He's going to open the door, go in and drive them out, just like he drove out the money changers in the temple. That's the picture here. Open the door. Christ is waiting, but don't put him to the test. He will claim eventually what is his. And so whatever you do, don't linger. Don't leave Christ standing at the door. Open it and dine with him. Lastly, verse 21. To the one who conquers, he will sit on the throne with Christ, just as Christ conquered and sat down to the one who conquers. He will sit on the throne with Christ just as in the same way that Christ conquered and sat down. This is the final word to the believers. Not just in Laodicea, but to all of the seven churches. And not just to the seven churches, but to all the churches from then until now, to all of those who are faithfully following Christ. It's one word that comes from His lips over and over and over again, isn't it? It's the word of promise to His people in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. And the word is conquer to the one who conquers. He will eat from the tree of life and walk in the paradise of God. He will be the one who will not taste the second death. The one who conquers will be given a white stone and the rod of iron and authority over the nations. The one who conquers will be confessed before the Lord and made a pillar in His temple. The one who conquers will sit down on the throne of glory. And in Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this inheritance. And I will be His God. And He will be my Son. And you get the point. If you're not a conqueror, you're not a Christian. A Christian under the banner of the Lord is a person who does not fall back or shrink away. They're a person who does not compromise or yield or submit to the temptation of the flesh or the world around them. They press on and they know they must even if they have to do it alone, even though if it seems like everyone else around them is falling by the wayside, they persevere knowing that Christ is with them and saying with Him, even though they all forsake me, yet I am not alone. 
This is the way of victory for the Christian, and it's found only by following Christ. He is the captain of our salvation. And listen, if you follow Him, you're going to have to walk where He walked. And if you conquer, you will conquer as He conquered. And He did it not by shrinking back, by setting, but by setting His face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And how did He defeat death? How was our Lord and Savior victorious? Well, He didn't strike death down. He charged toward it, plunged into it, and then emerged victorious on the other side. He didn't leap over His suffering. He didn't sidestep it. He went straight through it. And there is no other path for the Christian to follow other than the one laid by our Lord. What does that mean? It means we overcome, we conquer by laying down our lives faithfully until the end. And so if you're a Christian, you want to see the church triumph in the world, you're disturbed about everything that's happening around you, you're concerned about the world your children or grandchildren or the next generation of believers will inherit, and you're concerned about the souls of your countrymen here in this nation, you're grieved by the sin in the world and in the church and all of these things that seem so invincible, victory is secured in Christ. He has already triumphed, and those who overcome these giants in the land will only do it one way, by walking as near to Christ as they possibly can. By living righteously, by loving wholeheartedly, selflessly, by fighting the good fight of faith and counting the cost because it's not going to be cheap. All throughout the book of Revelation. Do you know how you see the church on earth? Think about it. Martyred, beheaded, driven to the fringes of society. They're in the crosshairs of the beast. Enemies are drunk on their blood. That's the picture, right? The book of Revelation really, in a sense, is, is a, a vast portrayal of what we read this morning. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. And yet the church, how else is it presented in the final chapters? It is the church triumphant. It is the church victorious, made up of those who are faithful and live forever. And the point is the church triumphs not in spite of, not by avoiding, but by passing through the trials they faced courageously just like their Lord. I mean, how many times have you cried out in this world, just God, do something? No victory comes without a price. No one conquers without a cost being paid. And even though we know the war's won, we've read the end of the book, the battles are raging on, and every believer has to answer the question. You really do. Is the glory to be won worth the weight of what will be lost? Can you really say, my sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in Jesus Christ? Young man, old man, women and children, count the cost. You want to be victorious. You want to triumph. You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Count the cost. You know, we, we love to say we are more than conquerors. You remember how that passage in Romans 8 begins? 
for his sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. In, in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In them, in being killed all the day long, in being slaughtered like sheep at a slaughterhouse. I mean, what do you think the early church looked like? If this is any indication... you want to conquer, you want to overcome, you want to sit on the throne with Christ, it will cost tribulation and persecution and famine and danger and sword. And the message of this book, the last book in the Bible, serves to remind us and paint us that heavenly picture that reminds us that every loss is worth it in the end to walk those streets of gold with Christ. Every drop of sweat, every tear, every drop of blood will be rewarded. No life laid down is not restored and restored a hundredfold greater than what was sown. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see and believe the glory that awaits those who are in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to be intimidated or frightened by the world around us. Lord, you have told us these things to prepare us in advance, to keep us from following away. And I pray, Lord, that every believer would be able to look at Christ and say, you are worthy of everything. You are worthy of it all. Lord, the world will put its finger on those things that we cherish most and demand them of us. I pray, Lord, that we would all be able to say that you are better and that we treasure you and your word and your promises more than any amount of comfort or trial in this world. Lord, you are our only hope and Lord, we look forward to in the coming chapters seeing Christ on his throne. You are worthy, Lord. You are the worthy one. Help us to believe it and to see it that we might be a people who are able to rejoice while we lay down our lives. Because what is earned by you and given to us so vastly outweighs it all. Help us to believe this, Father. Help us to see just a glimpse of what awaits those who have put their trust in Christ. Lord, just a glimpse would make all the suffering of this world pale in comparison. And I pray, Lord, that you would give your people the faith to see it and to believe it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.